Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Eric Clark with Mega Brands for another edition of the Mega Brands podcast. Um, Another consumer specialist. Um, You know, when consumer stocks are getting beat up, you always want to cluster in with the people who are suffering with you. (laughs) Paul Ciro from Cedar Grove Capital uh, on, I actually met him on through Twitter. I've met so, it's amazing. I've met so many people through Twitter. I've always thought it was a great brand that never seems to be able to figure out how to monetize. And I met Paul just through a lot of his posts and he's on Twitter at Paul Ciro, C-E-R-R-O, Cedar Grove Capital. You guys are in New York City and you're a long short equity hedge fund focused on consumer cannabis and tech. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we, we initially kind of started off um, because we saw like a, a really big disparity at the cannabis market, actually. So we actually wanted to like target that industry because there's a lot of rules and regulations about who can and cannot touch not only like the business of cannabis, but just the investing side of cannabis. So, you know, being, being a, a, you know, a hedge fund, you can, you can touch those things that, you know, traditional financial institutions really can't, um, you know, the bigger players can't get into as well. Um, so we're like, Hey, you know, if, if there's a desire for investors to kind of put money into this industry that, you know, they can't either do it themselves or they can't roll it up into their traditional accounts, you know, we'll do it for them. Um, so it actually was founded, for the sole purpose of cannabis investing. Um, and then from there, because unfortunately cannabis is super tied to regulation, et cetera, then, you know, we kind of expanded out to the consumer side of the business just because, you know, me and myself, I come from a consumer uh, investment banking background. So it's both, both those industries are very, very familiar to me. At the end of the day, the consumer uh, touches both aspects of the business. Um, so we provided an outlet for touching what can't be touched for the, for the masses. And then, getting a little bit of taste of opportunities in just traditional consumer and retail. Right. Well, I, you know, since it's summertime, I'm going to touch some of it right now. No, I'm not. Gonna <laughs> I would never do such a thing on a podcast. Never. I think never. That's already been done with Elon and Joe Rogan, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, it's not special anymore. 
by the way, uh, it is uh, it's Thursday, July twenty eighth, and I'm recording this uh, around eight fifteen or so Pacific time. Um, have you ever followed? Uh, you follow Aaron Edelheit on the uh, cannabis stuff? Oh, I do. I think I do. Yeah. Yeah, he's just. I, I've I've been reading his stuff for years and years and years, and he is so bullish on that space. And obviously, it's you know it's going to be a wild ride. He admits that it's going to be a wild ride. And it's you know, God forbid, we should get we should uh, expect any politician to do anything productive with it with anything timely, but. Um, but that's for another podcast, maybe. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, no, because that's because whoever actually does follow that, like it's it's that's a podcast in and of itself. But yeah, it's it's just wild when you actually understand it. Well, maybe when we get rid of some of the old geezers with old views and philosophies, maybe we could upgrade our our po political system and and do some some more interesting things. But again, that's for another time. Totally. So so talk to me about Cedar Grove. You know. Uh, a little bit right right now we talked to, right before we got on you're you're a little more concentrated than maybe normal or is this more or or, or is concentration really kind of um where, where you tend to sit all the time it's actually more concentrated than normal because i mean given this year uh, things have obviously taken a dip in the consumer yeah. retail space so considering how it's a highly cyclical industry, right? Like any, any, any hint of a downturn. And then unfortunately now, even with this morning's print of a like quote unquote technical recession, um, it's tough because even though, you know, consumer might be doing well in certain areas, it doesn't necessarily mean that the valuation is going to hold up. So traditionally we would go anywhere from like 10, 10 to 15 positions. And that's, there's no arbitrary amount of long, short positions. It's just like, we didn't really try to get past 15. Um, with this year, with things so down in the tubes now, I, it, it's, we've we really, actually, I don't hold any short positions anymore. Um, I think like a lot of them have kind of run its course and the risk reward of continuing to hold on to them is just, is at dangerous levels at this point. Um, so now with uh, the portfolio that we're at right now, you know, if you're including some of our options positions, you know, I think we're at about eight, eight total positions. Um, and it's, it's something that you know what like we're going to be comfortable with like we'll just resize up and the current positions that we have if there's an opportunity that does present itself you know like hey we'll we'll, we'll add it in there if it does make sense but for the time being um considering how we started off with 10 to 15 and now we're at eight like we're definitely a little bit more concentrated than we historically have been yeah how from a you know split just a general um general overview split between consumer stocks cannabis stocks and tech where is there one area that you're that you're a little more excited or overweight or or, or underweight if not uh the the sector that i'm still excited about will always be cannabis just because okay. i think that's one of the most like disconnected from reality markets that there are right now in the space um but unfortunately because of like the regulations that are hindering us we have fully pulled out of pure pure play cannabis. So we're actually talking about like the dispensaries, et cetera, and only currently have one position in cannabis ancillary, ancillary businesses. Um, so like they service the industry, but they don't actually touch it. Um, so overweight wise, we are traditional consumer and retail compared to cannabis. But as far as optimism goes, I'm still very much a, a, a very spoken out bull on the, on the industry. Yeah, I mean, it, it from from a. I mean, I, I can't invest in cannabis right now. Uh, I mean, I suppose I I could through through Constellation Brands for me, but the 
it, it just seems like there's so much asymmetry because you're waiting for positive developments, which it's hard to believe they don't come. But, uh, you know, logic is sometimes logic gets suspended. So, I, I mean, I don't, I don't and I don't even know what percentage of states uh, have legal cannabis now. It's actually I mean, if you're talking about recreational and medical I and mean, granted, each state is different. It's about it's over half, um, right? And in, in, in some capacity where cannabis is legal, um, and I made a joke uh, to other cannabis investors. I'm like, honestly, at this rate, it almost seems that every state would somehow pass a cannabis uh, regulation before the federal government does. Which is just like, if that ends up happening, is pretty pathetic. Uh, but that's what it looks like. That's like what the growing trend is because state more and more states either keep coming online or they're actually dropping down the regulation, meaning like, hey, instead of just medicinal, now we can do recreational. And instead of you know, certain, certain license limits for recreational, now it's like open-ended, like free market. Um, and that's, that's kind of where um, the trend is and we'll see what actually ended up happening. But yeah, I've, I've joked around about that. I'm, I mean, it's, it seems like the feds just sit on their hands and they just wait, you know, it's like the, I can picture them all in a room saying, well, you know, if 75% of the states decide to to go forward with this, then maybe we'll we'll have the air cover to go and do it at the federal level or something as if as if, you know, when, when I always hear the our, our constituencies say and I'm like, I would love to hear. Oh, can you list your constituent? Is it like three people? Exactly, yeah, same. You? Yeah, right. Literally. I, I'm going to call bullshit on the whole thing, but <laughs> I mean, American American politics, right? Like they represent the people, but they don't act on the people. No, they don't. They don't. They don't at, at all. So, so you know, cannabis is just one of those things that that I mean, for for the average person, would you say? I, I mean, the if if the opportunity does have some sort of positive pivot having an ETF is just as good as a few names or, or is there a part of the market that is, has such a, a wide asymmetry of an opportunity that people should do their research and focus on one particular part? Oh yeah. I, I refuse to touch on the long side. I refuse to touch cannabis or Canadian cannabis. Okay. Um, that's, that's your Tilray's that's your, you know, canopies, that's your, um, uh, village farms, you know, all those guys who are publicly traded on like the major exchanges, but on, on the TSX or TSE, um, I don't like their businesses because in, in, in Canada, the, the, the way cannabis is run is very government controlled. Um, it's, it's not very opportunistic. And that's kind of why they haven't made money. Like they, they've all been like, you know, doing uh, consistent debt offerings, equity offerings, like diluting shareholders to oblivion. Um, and I don't like it. But if we're talking about an opportunity, like even an immediate opportunity, I am pro-American uh, multi-state operators, right? These are your big guys. These are your your green thumb, uh, green thumb, True Leaves, um, uh, Air Wellness, like all these all these American companies that have just been hammered uh, on a regulation level. But their fundamentals of the business, it's it's wild. They've they've they you're you're, you're doubling revenue year over year, but it's not even like you're not making money. They are making money with some of the hardest tax restrictions on the business, and yet they're still profitable. Right. Um, so if you want to talk about a switch that gets you like an immediate ROI, it's a number of things, right? It can be like from 
uh, how the uh, their um, taxes can get recognized, right? So like safe banking, like where they get access to capital, how they can write off their expenses like traditional companies can. That immediately overnight flips their uh, operating margins, right? So it can, it can jump like double digits because now they don't have to, that can actually like write off expenses, they can depreciate things appropriately, et cetera. Um, and then the big, the big, big one is like, hey, you know what? Federally illegal, do what you want. States can regulate it. Boom, done. There's like there's a number of things, but the Canadians have only been held up right now because of the fact of like because they're listed on a major exchange, because they're listed in Canada, bigger funds and institutions are allowed to touch those, but they're not allowed to touch the Americans because they're all OTC markets and they're regulated. So, so the so the wave of money, if and when, is going to just it's come waiting right for it's a the tsunami. American. I mean, it's. And I'm, I don't know what market caps these things trade at, but I'm guessing it's a giant wave of money coming onto a very small shore. <laughs> Every single one is just waiting. Like, I mean, you've had banks and financial institutions with clients like, I want to get access to this. And they're like, well, we, we can't. Um, and that's kind of why every cannabis investor, even if they've held down this, even if they held on this year, which the cannabis market's down about 55%, um, through, like, I think yesterday's close, which sucks. But um, they're essentially, since they're allowed to hold on to it, they're just waiting. They're like, you know what? I can take a sh- I can take the short-term hit of losing half my money because I know the second that any of these regulations comes down in a, in a positive way, it's it's game over, right? Like this, this thing's going, for lack of better words, and I'm not trying to be a Wall Street bets person here, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to go to the moon, literally, right. because of there's so many things that will now be able to allow hundreds of billions of dollars to flood into the market that were been restricted over the last uh you know five ten years so so for all of you crypto people all of you bitcoin and solana and all that stuff i mean if you want some asymmetry that actually is something that's tangible you know what it is you can touch and feel it etc I mean, the cannabis asymmetry seems a lot more intriguing than the crypto asymmetry because I've talked to as so, so many smart people about crypto, and I can't for the life of me get anyone to describe it in, in terms that I can understand. So I've just largely stayed away, which made me really stupid for a while and then really smart for a while. So, um, yeah. but, but, I, but I see that link between the crypto stuff and the asymmetry of, of people's belief systems and then what could happen to this industry if we were to just to get some logic and common sense to come to uh, to the political system, which is a tough, that's a tough bet sometimes, but. Um, well, yeah, because even, even if you switch to the consumer and retail side, like you're just, just a traditional CNR, it, you know, politics aside, because there's really no really politics in there. It's like you have the consumer who is still, again, still spending in certain areas, right? You and I have definitely spoken about that for numerous names. And um you know, they're, they're the stocks have just been hammered, even though the consumer is still spending. And you know, you're just like sitting there, you know, with, with your thumbs in your hands, like twiddling them. Like, what, what am I supposed to do here when the underlying fundamentals are not broken? There's nothing actually wrong with them, but the market's just hammering valuation to a point where I, I it could it go lower? Like, yeah, but like, I, I'm skeptical because I don't know. I just don't know what to do anymore. Yeah. Well, I, I'd love to hear your, I have a, I have a view on that, that I, I, I had the view and I underestimated the market's uh, response to that view. And, and you know, you never know exactly why s- things happen. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, it's just more buyers than sellers or more sellers than buyers. You know, and anything else is just a narrative. But 
you know, with inflation high, hopefully kind of starting to trend lower, but likely staying much higher for, for longer than I think people think, um, that puts a crimp on valuations. And so, you know, when we use our normal valuation framework, well, that company with that growth and that industry and that, you know, addressable market should be trading at, at an X multiple. Well, geez, it's well past that multiple now. And we're all scratching our heads thinking, what's the deal? So talk to me about but about your views on inflation, how it, you know, it affects, you know, these valuations. And, and let's talk about consumer and or tech. You know, I, we, we talk sometimes about, about consumer. Um, we haven't talked too much about tech, so I'd love to know a little bit about what you, what you're seeing in, in consumer land first. Yeah, no. So there's, I mean, prime example, you and I were definitely bulls on restoration hardware. And, you know, historically, if you look back at how they're doing or how they did during times of uncertainty, they actually held up well, you know, because of a health or a wealthy consumer base, et cetera. So, you know, there's, there's these companies where, you know what, like, all right, who's going to drop off first? You know, it's usually like the lower income people. They usually end up switching from brand name to private label. You know, like they trade down when things are getting tough. The time they keep that's not that they stop spending. It's just they just spend less and, and switch to different things. Um, so you, you try to stick with the higher retailer guys. And then all of a sudden, you know, you kind of get hit with, oh, wait, not every high-end retailer now is doing well, right? Like LVMH is absolutely killing it. Chanel is killing it. But RH, you know, the, the expensive home furnishings player is getting killed, right? But then you have, you know, Williams-Sonoma, who also is not you know, on the cheaper side. It's, you know, the kind of pricey, depending on who you speak to. Um, but they're doing, they're doing well, then they're killing it. But then, you know, you switch to uh, other areas of like, you know, like we talk about gap, like gap is just complete trash. It's always been trash and it's been getting it's slaughtered, but then you have, you know, other apparel companies, um, like Lululemon, who again, have been, they've raised twice this year already and their stock is still getting hammered. So, you know, you, you sit there and you're trying to like see how historicals have kind of played out with these companies, whether it's the great financial crisis, whether it's, you know, 2018 or 2014, you know, like even, even um, COVID. And you're, you're trying to paint a picture of like what's actually going to happen and what's going to hold up if history is going to repeat itself. And the short story to this is, you know what, like none of those actually help because it actually hasn't played out the way that it has in the past two, three times that this has kind of happened. Um, so it's super, super tough to do like any type of capital allocation in these names because at the flip of a switch, you know, you could have a company, you know, midway through their next earnings um, release, you know, put out an AK saying, oh, you know what? Sorry, we're actually going to be comping down. You know, inflation's killing us. Uh, margins are getting crushed like a Walmart or a Target twice already for both of them. And um, it's, it's, it's tough. So it's, I've been trying to focus more now after getting hammered this year on things that I know for a fact are good companies. And you know what, if I get killed on the valuation in the short term, but I know fundamentally they're stronger, I'll eat it and I'll just wait because nothing has um, shown to me that um, it's deteriorating. And unfortunately I can't predict the future. So it's just something that you gotta be like comfortable with and just making sure that you know your homework is right and you're mitigating any type of risk that you can with your research. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to one of our clients, our advisors that used the the brands fund the other day, and and I and he was like, you know, gosh, you know, consumer's been tough, com services been tough, tech's been tough, like that's you know, and that that tends to be where the most relevant, most iconic, most amazing brands that they, they, they live. So when you focus on a on a on a couple of 
parts of the market that are struggling the most, even though you know long-term they are the best performing part of the market. One, it doesn't feel good, but two, you have to remember, you already know the answers to the test. You already, you've seen the movie before. And so mm -hmm. these are the times when you wanna be building bigger positions when the narrative is really negative because you know how the movie ends. But I mean, the last two and a half years, epic disruptions to businesses, supply chain issues, I mean, shedding the light on supply chain problems that need to get fixed for, you know, for long term, um, consumer demand changes, inventory management issues. I mean, this is the most unprecedented time for a lot of businesses and industries. So, of course, there's going to be a bunch of dislocations and, and you know, since with epic inflation, you know, at the core of a lot of this stuff and 90% and of the investors that are investing today have never seen a CPI print of 9% or more. So it's yeah. not like, you know, I tried to, one of my other portfolio managers, James, you know, I, I was like, Hey man, let's do a, let's do a look back and, and see how this did or that did. And he's like, dude, there's not even data. The indexes, the sector indexes, they weren't even around. You can't, <laughs> there's just not a lot of data mm -hmm. you can mm -hmm. get to in those periods. What did these kinds of stocks perform? Well, you, there's just not a lot of stuff. So you really have to start thinking logically. And even then, even the logically portion, sometimes you, you think you're, you think you're, you're think you're thinking about it in a logical sense. And then the market says, ah, you know what? Like, right. nope, you're wrong. And you're like, well, I don't, okay. <laughs> you sit there like, I guess it didn't matter. So, so can you, can you talk about some consumer stocks that you're, that you're excited about? Yeah, so maybe misunderstood. I mean, it seems like everything's misunderstood now. Oh man, I mean, if we're talking, if we're talking like uh, pure consumer here, I mean, I, I I'm pretty sure I, I annoy everybody on FinTech at this point about Petco, like ticker woof. Um, it has it if you if you understand the business, if you have a pet and like you you know you're shopping around and you really and you can embed what you want as a pet owner into a business that can provide you with the most value possible. You, you would then discover that Petco is an amazing company delivering exactly what you want and the exact kind of capacity that you need it. And yet the market has been favoring Chewy over Petco, even though Petco is such a better business. It is profitable. It's, dry, it's actually uh, producing free cash flow. It's, for, it's producing adjusted EBITDA that's not insane. Um, and it's just gotten hammered because the market is not giving it a premium for the online presence that it's created, but it's hammering it for the retail side of the business because other retailers have gotten hammered, most notably Walmart and Target and a bunch of others. Um, so when you put a side-by-side, -side, you have a fundamentally better business than the tech-focused Chewy, and yet the market's giving a premium to Chewy because of this tech-oriented background, even though, even though the business is actually weaker than Petco. And I, I'm sitting here looking at it on a daily basis, like what is going on? Because there's this, this doesn't make any sense. And even today, like um, I subscribed to, I subscribed to Seeking Alpha to get like other people's um, ideas. And one of the guys that I follow, he just posted an article this morning, Petco is in such deep value territory. And I'm like, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's actually gotten ridiculous. Um, but that's this one where the consumer has literally kept going, kept, keeps buying premiums, premium stuff for their pets whether it's food, whether it's services, grooming, et cetera, because they're not, when you, when you treat your pet, like a, like a child, you're going to, um, 
you're going to pay up for it. And then time and time again, this company has beaten earnings, beaten earnings, beaten earnings. It's raised. And you're sitting there like the market just doesn't care anymore. And you're like, well, then at what point will it? And that's kind of what we're sitting on right now. I mean, uh, yeah, you're talking to a guy who actually makes makes the meal for the dog. I mean, I, yeah, there you go. Yeah, see? <laughs> and, I, and I make, and part of it is like these days, I literally make my dog's egg, my dog egg, and then mix it with the dry dog food because the other stuff, one, is garbage in most cases, and two, it's expensive, you know? So yeah, believe yeah. me, spoiling my pet is right up my alley. <laughs> Me too. I, 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 I spoil her. I, I even tell my, like my friends, no, I love my dog so much that if I have to be able to afford it, I will, I will go on rice and beans if I have to make sure that my dog has a, has a good life. That's love. Yeah, literally, <laughs> literally. Um, but, but so the one thing that's kept me out of the, that, that category is, and I'd love to hear your opinion about this. I, I mean, it seems like it's such an impulsive purchase. Oh crap. I'm, I'm running out of dog food. I got to go out and get dog food. And then you just, you know, you can buy it. It's, you can buy it at the grocery store. You can buy it at Petco. You can buy it, you know, you can buy it online. If you, if you're organized enough to set up recurring, you know, recurring deliveries and stuff. And so mm -hmm. you can buy it at Walmart, you can buy it at Target. Like what the brand loyalty to, to me, I love the Petco story because I, it, it's a store that I can go to, but it, but I don't see the, I don't see the loyalty a, a angle of me taking the impulse to just go to Sprouts when I need to buy a bunch of other stuff versus making an effort to go specifically to that, you know, to that brand. I mean, what, what, what am I missing there? And, and is that, that's gotta be part of it. I mean, I don't understand if the numbers are good and consumer spending is good and, and pet food is a good staple and staples are doing good, then why the heck isn't this brand doing good? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because like you have um, your competitors, right? You can have like pure play pet retailers that like, Hey, that's what this, that's what they do. That's their job. Right. Um, but then if you look at other, other retailers, like your specialty retail, whether it's like Target or your traditional retail like Walmart, where they also do sell pet pet related stuff, um, they in theory could be competition because hey, if I'm gonna go pick up like a carton of eggs or milk or something like that, I can also pick up stuff from my dog. But when you're a pet owner, I think the real value that you always try to get, and I actually like put some research on this, is like you're trying to get the most bang for your buck, right? And that and that encompasses a lot of different things. For Petco, it's one of those things where like hey. That is what we do. That is what we're known for. And we've created a business where you can get all of your pet needs, not, even, not, a, not a portion, all of your pet needs in one central location. I mean, that's the food, that's the toys, that's the grooming, that's the training, that's the bathing, that's the insurance, that's the veterinary care, that's the premium fresh food that is made on the spot. Everything that you would need is in one store. So it's like, why would you want to go to your Walmart to pick a bag of dog food? Why would you go to Target to pick up a bag of dog food? Why would you go anywhere else? Because we can do it all. And like, we can keep you here through our loyalty programs, through our discounting, through our delivery services, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why that's why that's where they got me. That's why they have me. Yeah, I, I, and may, and I don't, you know, sometimes you don't know if you're the typical consumer or you're the atypical consumer, but- That I is typical, know, yep. You know, I just know in our own habits, rarely is there the same 
dog food being purchased and rarely is it ever being purchased from the same place. And yeah, so I mean, because I, I mean, I was I actually spoke. Do you follow Chit Chat Money at all? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually spoke to them yesterday about it. Um, and it's 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 um, it's interesting you bring that up because you have you have so much options out there, and you you ask yourself again, am I the abnormal person or not? And in reality, if if you actually do look at yourself, for like me, for instance, I actually started off with Chewy. Um, I was going to Chewy for everything, and then when I moved closer to a Petco and I just perchance walked into the store. I'm like, wait, this is better. <laughs> and then like, I, that's when I started, you know, shifting things over from Chewy to Petco. And now I actually don't even buy from Chewy. I get everything from Petco because it just makes more sense. I actually save more money by doing right. Petco than I do Chewy. Yeah. And, you know, once, once the average person figures this out, I'm like, why wouldn't they make the same change? This isn't, this isn't a, a crazy irrational decision here. This is pretty logical. I mean, I don't, I don't follow it that closely to uh, uh, Petco. Um, I mean, have their revenues, their free cash flows, you know, all of the, all of the operating metrics that, that, that are the most important for that industry and that company, have they all moved in the correct direction other than the stock price? Yeah, literally. If you, if you were to compare the two side by side, you have, what everybody labeled as a pull forward because of COVID, right? Everybody's adoption levels went through the roof. Everyone's getting one dog, two dogs, three dogs, whatever, um, cats, et cetera. Everyone's like, oh, you know what? It's going to fall off a cliff because the rate of adoptions are not going to be as steady anymore. And that's true. That's true. Like, right. If you're not adopting anymore, it's like, what type of, what type of growth can you really see if the, if the major first major input is the actual pet itself. But what many people fail to realize is that, um, it's not just how many pets come onto the market. It's also what is happening underneath. And that is, you know, the, the average consumer spending more and, you know, the actual expenditure on a yearly basis, they're spending more on their pet. Now it's not just like a flat line. It's not like the necessary, the necessity of food and, you know, some treats. It's now it's like, you know what, I'm going to get my dog some shoes just because I can, or I'm going to get them like, a. am not going to lie. I'm going to sound like a complete asshole right now. My dog has two barber coats and that's just because like, I'm just like a snob when it comes to barber. <laughs> um, so like that, that's for instance. Right. And then you have uh, the veterinary care. If my dog even remotely seems like it's uh, she's sick, you, you bet your ass. I'm going to, I'm going to go to the, to the vet to see what's going on. And yeah, unfortunately I'm going to be paying a couple hundred dollars. But then again, I have insurance that'll offset that. So then now I'm paying for the insurance. I'm paying for the premiums. I'm paying for the veterinary care. I'm paying for you know whatever medicine the doctor says I need to take or whatever. Um, and then now, like my my dog unfortunately got him some, some stuff on the side of the street, and she had a she had a uh, a pancreatic episode. Now I got to buy her certain dog food because now she's more susceptible to other dog food than other. Uh, now it's, now I'm paying you know, 50% more than I normally would because of that. You know, it's all these things that people actually don't account for unless you're actually in the industry, right? Unless you actually have an animal. And so when you look at what Petco is doing, they're like, yeah, we can treat all of that. So we can take more wallet share of every pet owner that comes online because of what we're offering. And if we can, we can, we can control a full stack offering, then over time, yeah, margins go up. And if you look at the financials, their adjusted EBITDA margins have gone up, right? If you're not a fan of adjusted EBITDA, you look at their free cash flow. Free cash flow has also gone up. Their revenue, they're 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 spending, they're they're making almost six billion dollars in revenue, and they're growing at like a uh, seven to eight percent. And you look at Chewy, who's doing ten billion dollars in revenue, 
granted they're growing a little bit faster, but they still don't make money. And yet when you put it side by side, you're like, when are they ever going to make money? Because if you, even if, and I spoke about it with um, Chichat, Jim Chanos, even with DoorDash and his short thesis, he's like, if you can operate at the pinnacle of your industry, right? In COVID where like nobody's going out, everybody's getting food delivered and you can't make money then you're never going to make money. And that's Amen. exactly what's happening with Chewy. That's, that's why I actually took a long position in Petco and I shorted Chewy at the same time. That was my pair trade. So I'm like, Chewy's is never going to make money. And that's exactly what's happened, right? Um, they still don't make money yet. People are trying to, um, you know, buy the dream of what a DTC pet food company can be. When in reality, it's like, no, it's not going to ever be that. I'm sorry. No, I, I joke with my daughter. She's 12. And every time I have to take my dog to the vet or it costs me money, I'm like, you know, I can go get a new dog for the price, that I, <laughs> right? And daddy, we love this dog. I'm like, who's we? You got a mouse in your pocket? Yeah, this dog's exactly. driving yeah. me nuts. <laughs> and I think people completely underestimate what it costs to have a dog, right? I yep. mean, it's not even just like traditional like food and toys and stuff like that. I mean, I've had, a, I've had friends, unfortunately, where like, you know, we're at a dog park and their dog unfortunately swallowed a bit of a tennis ball. They had to rush into the hospital and do emergency surgery. That emergency surgery cost them $6,000 and then insurance covered 80%. So even then, even if the insurance covered 80% of it, you're still a couple thousand dollars out of pocket for, you know, your dog by accident chewing a tennis ball. It's, it's stuff like that where, you know, it's, uh, it, really add, it really adds up, especially when veterinary clinics are making like 20%, you know, clinic level margins. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know maybe I'm just a hammer always in search of the same nail, but it, but it seems to me just from, and this is just a personal, personal observation from my life. They need to spend more time on branding and because you need to, you need to get me to, to be convinced that going to, when I'm going to the grocery store for a bunch of things that I need, that I, that I should consider also, running out to the to the Petco store versus just buying whatever is in the grocery store. So I can check the box off. I got the dog food. I got the dog bowl. I got the dog leash. I got the dog brush, whatever yeah. it is, right? It, it just seems like that category is just one that it's just not required to get what you need in most cases at that store and at that brand versus any number of other places, which so, so they're not capturing the revenue that they could because they haven't branded it as such that like you need to really, you know, your dog, your dog's important enough for an, a little extra time to go to Petco. Yeah. So, yeah, is, your cat. so is your fish. <laughs> you're, you're spot on. I think there's two levels of marketing that they can do, right? It's the marketing of the actual business to the consumer, which Chewy excels at, right? I think I see Chewy all over my Instagram, all over my like advertisements and YouTube, et cetera. I see Chewy all the time. And then, but they also need to market to the market, right? Because I, I think people, many people left Petco for dead because they, they treat them as a specialty retailer and nothing but. When in reality, it's like, no, they're, they, they and PetSmart, but PetSmart's not public, are taking Chewy, you know, out, out to, you know, out to the fields here and like taking their, taking their shoes and everything else. When in reality, um, additionally, like Chewy is not doing that great, but they can sell themselves super well to all these sell side analysts who are like, oh yeah, it's worth this much money because of that tech component, right? Because right. of their um, auto ship sales, right? That's recurring revenue, you know, all this, all this BS, you know, KPIs that Petco doesn't highlight yet. 
Um, and if they did, I guarantee you, they'd be, they'd be drumming some interest in here. Uh, granted, it's an uphill battle, but for sure, marketing on both fronts, I'm full support of that. Do, do, they, have, uh, do they have a big plan for expansion of stores? It's, well, it's funny you mentioned that because, um, and I spoke about it the other day with Chit Chat, it's like uh, retail, you can attest to this, right? You talk about like five years ago, actually more, probably like seven years ago, when you know, like e-commerce was like really becoming a thing, right? Like Amazon was just like growing at like ridiculous rates. Um, they, were, they were writing off retail as dead. Like retail is dead. If you're not online, then you know, you're just gonna be left in the dust. You're eventually go bankrupt, et cetera, et cetera, which was like coming true, right? Like JCPenney, you know, like um, uh, uh, Sears, Kmart, et cetera. But what the smart ones did, you know, retail like luckily didn't die, but what the smart ones ended up doing was instead of buying or building fulfillment centers to exclusively provide the online business what their inventory needs are, they actually just started using their retail stores as their own personal fulfillment centers. You know, if I, why would I spend more on the real estate and additional inventory and additional labor when I can just fulfill any type of online order from the current store that I'm already paying for, for the inventory that I've already paid for, et cetera. So that's actually what you know, like Petco has done. Petco's like, I will use our Petco stores as fulfillment centers. So will they continue to grow? Yes, but they're going to be growing strategically where they can actually build a location that can be both um, because that's what their business model has transformed into in order to compete with Chewy in which they're actually beating it at. Because I can get dog food with their DoorDash partnership in like two hours. Like Chewy, I, have to, I still have to wait two days and I don't, it doesn't cost me anything. Yeah, the the whole e-commerce. I mean, listen, maybe we're all just going to be sitting in our houses, never going out, and just ordering (laughs) stuff. I I don't know that you end up the 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 metaverse. Remember Austin Powers, the 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 one uh, character, fat bastard. Yeah, oh, (laughs) like one of the best characters ever. Like we're all just going to be sitting there, you know, waiting for our Amazon packages and our Chewy packages. But I'm not buying it. Uh, one, one last question on the, and I'm going to, I'm going to send this to Brian, who's the CFO over at Padco and, and Ron, happy to talk C- to Brian. he's doing CEO. great. As, he's know, such a yeah. great dude. Um, but like, here's my pet peeve about retail. And I think Petco and I think other retailers really should consider this. I, I think in their, in their view that they should give more choice to consumers. They're actually consumer, com- they're confusing consumers even more. Right. In my mind, if I'm a consumer, I if I had my brands doing real due diligence on every product category and picking like the the cheap skew, and this goes back to the grocery uh, uh, the grocery idea I sent to you. Yep. Give me the high quality cheap option for people who just are value shoppers, and give me the one that's actually worth the extra spend because of this, this, and this. Get rid well, of the rest, right? It's it's funny you bring that up though, because the the good thing about Chewy, or not Chewy, I'm sorry, Petco is that they actually have a bunch of private label brands that do fit the best bang for your buck value oriented purchases. Right, like you if you can have that customer, like I'm one of them for my for my dog treats. Um, I get her the Petco private label brand one because it's cheaper, but I also know they're high quality. But I'm not going to spend as much. I could you know, buy up to their blue Buffalo dog treats, which is going to cost me two times more, which I also know is great, but I'm buying the brand name. So they, they actually do have the options. It's just that I, they, they just, I don't feel like they're marketing it as well as they could. Um, but 
you know, if you're, especially if you're a new pet owner, like, yeah, you walk in those aisles and you're like, what the hell do I buy? Cause there's about 50 different brands. Um, but then again, like if you, if you, if you just got your pet, you know, you got to actually figure out what they like. I've met, I've met some pets where they get like the farmer's dog, right. That's like that premium fresh frozen food and they don't like it. And you're like, well, I don't know. Well, I don't know what to do at this point. If you're not, if you're not going to eat my like $60 a bowl farmer's dog food, you got you know, the like, wrong dog. <laughs> you got the wrong dog. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's broken, man. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. It's either they love I, garbage or they, they eat that. But I mean, you know, if you have a select group of, uh, of SKUs per important category that serves people that say that category is something that is important to me or perceived important to my pet. And therefore I want the highest quality and I'm willing to pay. You have that option. And then other people say that isn't as important. I just want to save money. That's why private label is killing it at grocery stores. Yep. That allows your, that allows you to shrink your, your store footprint by, by two thirds, probably. It probably allows you to have a lot more leverage over your, 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 uh, your merchants because they know that they're going to be a bigger part of their revenue rather than having 17 other SKUs in that category. It just seems like you could have smaller footprints, which are easier for consumers to digest. You have kind of perceived, you know, the consumer reports of all these products, which makes me feel like I don't have to think anymore. I'm just going to go in and make a decision. Is it worth paying more for that category and, and just getting the cheap one? And overall, I'm going to spend less. To me, there's just a lot of things that retail can do rather than these massive stores with massive overhead and massive staffing and too many SKUs. That's just my own opinion. Yeah, I mean, you kind of almost draw that back to what Steve Jobs said back in the day, right? Like consumers don't know what they want until you show them. Until you show um, them. And, you know, actually, I, I exchanged some correspondence with uh, Rahul Sharma. I know you've spoken to him, like retail yeah, guru on Twitter. Super smart. And yeah, we're talking about like the, the consumer um, stapled companies, right? So like your, your Cokes, your Pepsis, et cetera, and like how they they've taken price, but like had a minor hit to volume. And, you know, I'm telling him, like, I'm surprised they're still doing this well, because like, historically speaking, right, like when you have so many of these options, you do trade down, you want the more private label value oriented brands, and it hasn't changed. It hasn't moved. And I'm, I'm sitting here like, I thought this would have already happened by now. And yet these companies were reporting, no, our premium brands are still doing great. And, um, you know, like obviously there's, there's a big margin difference between the two, right? Like if you're the owner of a private label brand, you get that nice margin expansion because of it. Um, but even when it comes to like the, the pet stuff, it's like, uh, I, I know I've, I've seen like other sales side reports too. They're just like, you know what? Um, the consumer, like even Wedbush the other day, which like really pissed me off because they've been failing so hard this year. Um, they were saying like, you know, the consumer's going to stop. They're going to slow down spending on pet discretionary stuff. I'm like, where are you coming up with that? Because that's not what's happening. Like literally that is not what's happening. And even if you look at the staple stuff, you can trans, there's a, there's a pretty strong correlation between um, dog staples, whether it's a little bit premium of you know, the, the food compared to the, you know, value oriented food. And if you're buying like Coke to like RCA or something like that, you know, like there's, there, it, it's along the same lines. It's for two different things, but it's along the same lines. And they are not trading down. So, like, where are you getting this information from? Because I'm not seeing it. That's just something that you know can translate to a lot of the consumer companies that you and I have both invested in. Because there just seems to be so many different uh, opinions in the kitchen here that 
I don't know. I feel like they're just pulling numbers out of their ass at this point because they just don't know what to do. <laughs> no, I, I, I think when you compare all of that, that stuff, plus just supply chain issues and foreign currency stuff for, for conglomerates. I mean, there's just, there's just so many different things to navigate that it's tough, but, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're already, we're already in the middle of the hurricane at this point. So now I'm like, you know what, all I'm going to keep doing when the market goes down is clustering into the best brands that I think. And, and I'm also, you know, when the market finally does bottom, wherever that is, we're yeah. all going to want some of the dumpster diver stocks that have way more asymmetry on the upside than some of the, the highest quality stocks. You know, whether it's a Zoom or a Zillow or a Fiverr or, you know, I got I got my little list of of the, those stocks that have absolute Shopify might even be on it at this point that, that have gotten absolutely annihilated that when the market finally does you know, turn, you're going to want to have some of the, the dash for trash, highly levered businesses that survived because the, the returns on those are going to be two, three, four hundred percent. Um, we don't have too much time, but I would love to know uh, a little bit about your story of exponential fitness. I don't know that brand. So, um, you know, that that's a, it's always nice for, for everybody to hear a little bit about a company they probably don't know too much about. Talk to me about that, that category and that brand. Yeah, because I think you know too, like when it, especially coming out of a recession or coming out of a downturn, usually the smaller cap names are the best ones to outperform uh, uh, compared to like you know their mid to, mid to large caps. Exponential Fitness is one of them. They're actually a sub one billion dollar company. I think they're at like eight hundred million dollars right now. Um, but the 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 whole idea behind it is it's a fitness franchise model, a hundred percent franchise, right? No company owned unless it's like being bought, transformed, and then resold again, right? Which is nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but what I got interested in this is because I, back when I was a banker, I was, we were trying to take them public, you know, years ago. And they're like, oh, you know, we'll wait. I'm like, okay. So as soon as I got a, a notification that they were going to go public, I was like all over it. I was like white on rice. I was like, this is, I know this company. And that's at the same time when I was looking at Peloton and I'm like, there's no way Peloton should be trading even at these levels. And I think at the time it was like 80 or 90 bucks a share. Um, so being a very avid fitness person myself, I was like, you know what? I would highly bet that people will want to go in person again to work out. I don't think this treadmill at home or this bike at home, while it is popular, it is not going to hold at the rates that it's holding. So what I ended up doing was I looked at exponential fitness. They have been utterly killing it in many different categories, right? Like they've been bringing up their um, average unit volumes, right? The, how much money each studio makes to basically borderline pre-pandemic levels. Their attendance rates have been going up to like 99% of pre-pandemic levels. Their studio uh, openings have been going about a couple hundred a year. And actually I think they're forecasting 510 for 2022. Um, you're talking about international expansion. So from the time they went public, they had like eight countries. Now they have 12. Uh, you're talking about license sales in the thousands, which are contractually obligated to open. Um, and then you keep having all these like great reviews. You have numerous brands under one portfolio or one holding company. So it's like you can attract so many different avid fitness enthusiasts into one company because they just own 10 different brands that do 10 different uh, boutique kind of fitness oriented classes. So you, you keep looking at what's going to be happening and you're like, they have the growth, 
you know, they have the operating leverage because they're fully franchised, right? So they're not actually incurring any charges because of a company-owned store with like labor expenses, et cetera. Um, so you're getting this massive expansion, even from even from last year to this year, they're 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 projecting like 1,400 basis points in margin expansion because of the fact that like not only have their growth their growth in their studios, but they're rolling off the company-owned ones to repackage and sell them off to new franchises. Um, you know, you're you're getting all of this um, white space not only in America but then also abroad. You're getting a, a very, I think, a very smart roll-up strategy where they can identify new fitness concepts and put and bring them into the umbrella and repackage it to, you know, sell the members. It's like, there's like all these things that keep checking off the box and yet nobody knows about it. And I'm sitting here trying to get the word out. And I'm like, you want an opportunity. This is it. Like literally like, I, please just look at it. Right. What, what's the, what's the market cap around of planet fitness? I, I don't, I haven't really paid attention to that one much. Oh, it's actually on my screen. Sorry. Give me one second. Um, which also is, you know, it's, it's like same, same, but different because like, obviously there's, they're like more heavy capital intensive gyms right. rather than like low cost fitness studios. I mean, Planet Fitness right now is at six and a half billion dollar market cap. Okay. Um, it's not at the, the highest it's ever been, but um, it's, it's up there and it's, it's, you know, it's a different model, but you're talking about an $800 million business of exponential fitness that is growing double digits. Everything is check marking off the box as far as the consumer is not going away. And um, you know, I've spoken to other PMs about this who are you know equally bullish. Um, and yeah, we're super confident that this thing is currently trading at fourteen dollars, but we're thinking it can easily hit thirty in the next year or two. Right. Uh, so you're talking about a multi bagger, easy. Is 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 that a similar size as like an F forty five? It's funny you bring that up. Yeah, because. Um, the, there's a lot of similarities between the two, right? It's, it's the same fitness franchise concept. The downside is F45 is just that. It's just F45. Exponential Fitness has different yoga brands, different Pilates brands, different hit brands, different like Rumble Boxing, Rumble Tread. You know, it's, it's a bunch of different things. Whereas F45 is a one concept under one company and they've been incredibly mismanaged and their stock has gone down the tubes. I think it dropped to like 50 something percent yesterday. Whereas, you know, Exponential reported yesterday, hey, our memberships are up 32% year over year and the stock pops 7%. Um, so it's the same, but there's a lot less risk with Exponential as far as a fitness concept, because I kind of like labeled it myself, maybe I should trademark it or talk to them about it, but they're almost like a fitness ETF, like a pseudo fitness ETF, because it's one company that has 10 brands compared what other, to other. What other ahead. brands? Uh, maybe you've heard of it. So they have like Yoga Six, Club Pilates, oh, Pure wow, Bar, yeah. Rumble. My wife loves Yoga Six. Yeah, and they just they just yeah. I, I have oh, man, my girlfriend loves Pure Bar, um, and um, my friends love Pure Bar as well. And they have they just acquired this Australian brand called uh, Body Fit Training. They paid about forty million dollars for it, and it immediately tripled their international studio presence. And now they're bringing it to America, where they believe that they can get another thousand units out of it in just America alone. Um, so when you're talking about fitness risks, it's not like one day someone's just gonna quit, be like, oh, you know what, I'm done with yoga. All right, well, if you're done with yoga, go try out the Pilates, go try out the Rumble, go try out other stuff. Whereas if you're at F45 and you're done with F45, that's it, you're out, you're done. Just right. like Planet Fitness, if you don't want a gym, that's it, you're done, you're out, like that's what it is. So there's, there's like a, a, a pseudo hedging going on with the company of just being in with the company. What's what's the symbol for exponential? Like, X P O S. X P O S. I uh, 
you know, during the, the, the latter part of the pandemic, I, I remember tweeting and I've even sent emails. I, I, I think it's funny that I send emails to CEOs. Nobody ever responds clearly. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, no, nobody. Right. Your business is in the crapper, your stock price is in the crapper, but you're not interested in outside ideas. Right. You're just yeah, going to stay on the same path and just hope that it, uh, ho hope that things change. But I was like, I don't, if you're Peloton, you now have an opportunity. I said, you should buy Equinox. You should own the Peloton market and the gym market. Come out of the pandemic owning the fitness market with, with a couple of strong brands. That would have been a much better spend than buying your manufacturing and a bunch of other crap that they did. I, it, I'm, a fr I'm frankly amazed that the market cap is $3 billion already. I still think they have, I still think they have issues, but you know, it feels like, I mean, is exponential a maybe a maybe an acquisition by Planet Fitness or are they two different, you know, cultures, business models that Planet would be like, no, I'm not going in that direction. Too different. So it's just yeah. too different. Um, I think it's because of the fact of like, even though Planet Fitness is a franchise business, right? They do, um, they, they're, they're, it just costs way more money to open up a Planet Fitness. When you open up an exponential, you're talking about a minimum investment is $150,000. Like that's cheap, right? You still have to have like a net worth. You still have to have minimum liquidity, but to open one, you can, you can get so many more people that can open up a, um, uh, an exponential fitness studio than you can a $1 million plan of fitness, right? So this is fundamentally different. Um, and then like, the thing is like, they don't, they don't need to, they don't need to, they're already, they're already doing great with the people who don't want to go to the gym. That's why it's very, smart to keep them separate because um while the same underlying trends of like being active and being healthy and getting your body moving exists between the two they're very different and i personally think they need to stay separate um your comment with like a peloton and equinox to me that makes sense right because you're talking about stationary bikes you're talking about stationary treadmills um their new rower which god help them but um <laughs> it's uh that makes more sense to me than combining you know, low equipment studios with high equipment studios, at least as, at least far, as far as a broader company basis. Right. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know why there isn't a Peloton gym that's, that's all connected fitness. And there's a bunch of the Peloton stuff in there. Maybe they partner with TRX or buy TRX. Like there's just so many things they could have done in fitness. That oh, even TRX is separate. Do you see their, do you see how, how badly they were doing? I'm sure. I mean, listen, the reality is most people don't like to work out because it hurts because it's time consuming, because you have to sweat. It's hard. I, I talked to my daughter about, she's like, daddy, I don't want to go in the gym with you and work out. I'm like, sweetheart, <laughs> if it's hard and it's pro and it's good for you, it's probably important to do. Yes. And yep. it's only hard because you're not doing it. Once you do it on a regular basis and you train your body, it doesn't become hard anymore. It actually, your body craves it. You just have well, to get through that miserable period of it being hard because your body's not used to it. Well, that's the great thing too, right? Because if you think about a gym like Planet Fitness or even your Equinoxes, you actually really have to like motivate yourself, not only to go, but then to do the workouts when you're there. If you go to a studio, right, you get like half of that equation. You have to motivate yourself to just go. But once you're there, it's instructor led. You got someone right. who's like yelling at you, like, no, go, go faster. Or, no, 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 like two more, blah, blah, blah. And it's a lot more motivating for people because you know what, they don't have to rely on themselves because someone else is yelling at you. And not only does someone else like instructing you, but then you also have the people beside you and natural human psychology here is like, 
if I got a guy to my left who, you know, I think is like super strong or whatever, and he's doing five more pushups than me. No, 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 no. I want to get six. I'm going to somehow I got to get to six, you know, like I got to beat this guy next to me, even though I don't even know his name. It's just like a natural inherent, uh, inherited competition in, in human psychology. So there's that component as well. So it's, it's a lot more, I don't say foolproof, but it's, it's just a better way to, um, attract fitness enthusiasts that you are lazy, um, just because of that factor alone. Right. All right. We, we're, uh, we're almost out of time. Anything in technology you want to talk about? Um, so when it comes to technology, I'm not like a, I'm not a big fan of, um, like the, the traditional techs. I try to stick with consumer, consumer tech. tech. Right. Um, so like, I guess like that rolls into like Apple, right. That rolls into like Amazon, but I try not to do with those because like, why would I be taking a fee on something that every large cap ever already has money in? I know. Um, so if we're talking about like tech oriented businesses, like some things that like I have on my radar, at least are like Fiverr. Um, that's very big on like people who obviously are trying to offer services who are trying to buy services at the end of the day, they're just normal people, right. They're not, they're not like actual businesses, um, stuff like that. When it comes to pet, I have looked at Rover, um, just from a fact of like, people are going to still want their dogs walked, you know, um, et cetera. Uh, other things like what else I have on my list. Um, I have looked at the secondary market when it comes to, um, which I'm called, uh, like actual physical goods. So you mean like the real, real, um, I know it's, you know, secondhand merchandise that you can buy and sell online as well. Um, stuff like that. It's, it's kind of on my list, but I've kind of, I've, I've opted for more tangible related companies because I think when this is very contrarian thinking, I think is that many people are expecting tech oriented stocks to kind of like snap back as soon as, you know, the market steadies. Um, and while I think that may happen, I just think it's going to be happening as much as people think it's going to be happening. So that's why I'm like, hey, I'll own the companies that I can walk into and get, you know, free cash flow out of, and they'll still go up, but I feel way more comfortable owning them than I will, you know, these other tech companies that are dropping or, or, or rising 10% plus a day off of, you know, whatever Jay Powell says. Right, right. I, I mean, listen, the the last thing I'll end on is that that the Fed is clearly intent on slowing the economy and doing what it can. That's working. I mean, can you imagine the power of somebody that they talk about their intent and they don't even have to follow through that much and the market just changes and reacts and everybody, I mean, talk about that's that's the ultimate ego boost when you can, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, when you can tell people you're going to buy asset prices, you're going to buy assets and the market literally U-turns from there because, and you don't really even have to follow through on your actions. So the, 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 they are clearly slowing the economy. That's you're seeing that in interest rates now. And if we're in a slower economy, then companies that can grow faster than the average company and particularly faster than inflation even where it falls should do okay. If they're excessively valued, then they're gonna struggle. Their multiple is gonna to have to reset lower because of higher inflation. But there's, yeah, I, I agree. There's there's certain tech stocks that I think people are on the hope train with that are gonna re regain their, their former glory that you might have big rips off the bottom like watching ARC, but oh, God, a, lot yeah. that, <laughs> a lot of that stuff is never ever going to reach it. 
I mean, if Cisco, how long did it take Cisco? Oh my God. To reach its former glory in 2000. And that was a real company. So some of these companies, they ain't never getting back to the all time high. So good luck to you. Teladoc comes to mind. Oh, Teladoc. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Teladoc's one of them. I mean, Chewy, again, that's a pipe. It's a pipe dream, but you know, whatever. Well, listen, man, I could talk to you for hours about uh, about all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And really, I love that. The, really fascinating on the cannabis stuff because I don't really follow it. And, and but I, I agree there's there's so much interest that's waiting to get into that industry when there's the green light. It's going to be it's going to be a disorderly entry into into some of those names. So I'll start having to look at. Uh, so what names should we should people put on the radar to uh, to do their own research on? So if you're looking at the American ones that I mentioned, you're, you want to look at like tier one MSOs. These are the, these are the big guys. So it's your, your green thumb industries of the world, your true leave, your um, uh, air, air wellness, which is spelled A-Y-R, um, your, your cure leaves, right? Those guys are the biggest operators in America currently. Um, but again, their multiples are getting artificially hit because of what's just been going on. And then, like I said, as soon as you get that green light, honestly, the movements of these stocks is going to be like biblical. It's going to be insane. I know. I know. I might have to, every December, we, we uh, update the brand's 200 index and, and that's my investment universe. And there's always a small slug of kind of emerging brands. And I might just have to pe- uh, petition my partners to, to add somebody who would be kind of, if you, if there was one leader in the American uh, category, who would be kind of the, the 800 pound gorilla, at least now that, that I could, you know, use as a baseline. Depends on who you, depends on who you ask. I'm a, I'm like green thumb industries is, is the okay. one. And if you ask somebody else to be like, Oh, you know what? True leaf is the one. Um, but I, I, I have nothing against any of them because they all operate within like their own, I guess, geographical realms of the country. Um, but Green Thumb, I feel, is more bullish just because it's the one that I actually kind of covered on when I was a banker um, right. years ago. And I just, I'm just more familiar with it. I've been tracking them a lot better. And I'm like, all right, you know what? They all have potential, but I think this one's going to have a little bit more. Right. And for, and for listeners, follow Aaron Edelheit as well, because the guy runs his own little fund that's pretty much, I, I, last I remember, it being basically all cannabis stocks. So he's he's a super smart dude who's got multi-decades of of history investing. And I, you know, he made a ton of money investing in distressed real estate in the, in the housing crisis. And now his big, dis, you know, distressed asset is cannabis. So, all right, Paul, man, good to talk to you um, as always. And uh, you know, we'll uh, keep following Paul on Twitter at Paul Cerro, C-E-R-R-O, Cedar Grove Capital. Good to talk to you, man. Yeah, you as well. Thanks for having yeah, me. Talk to you later. See ya. Yep. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.